Episode 12, Visiting Europa, live from Imagine RIT. You're listening to SpexCast. Hey everybody and welcome to SpexCast. I'm Phil and today we have a very special episode for you all. On Saturday, May 7th, the Rochester Institute of Technology was open to the public for Imagine RIT, an event where all the university's clubs, departments, and organizations could show off all the cool things they've been working on this year. RIT Space Exploration had an amazingly successful time and we can't wait to do it again next year. During the event, SpexCast had the opportunity to record an episode in front of a live audience. We talked about Jupiter's icy moon Europa, NASA's plan to explore it, and more, plus a few questions from the audience at the end. But before I play that recording for you all, I just want to take a moment to congratulate everyone who has participated in Specs or supported us so far this year. Keep an eye on our Twitter page at RIT Specs for updates on projects and also some photos from the edge of space, courtesy the High Altitude Balloon Team. P.S. I've been manning the Twitter, so you know it's good. One last thing, I promise. Next Friday, May 14th, we'll be recording another episode with Spex founder Anthony Hennig to discuss his thesis on asteroid mining and public policy, and he agreed to answer your questions. Send us a tweet or email your questions to specscast at gmail.com, and we'll pick Anthony's brain together. All right, let's get on with the show. Building our own satellites right here at RIT, you can check out some of our exhibits in Gosnell Hall. Kevin is a graduate student at the Astrophysical Sciences and Technology Department studying galaxy evolution. He's also a formal ca- former counselor at NASA's Space Camp and co-creator of a Space News YouTube channel called Outest Space TV. Uh, he's also appeared on WXXI t- Radio to talk about space. And Kevin, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Um, so over the next half hour, we'll talk about Europa itself, why it's really cool, uh, proposed missions to go there, and at the end, we can have a little Q&A session. We should have a wireless microphone to pass around the audience. Uh, we also have Twitter, so if you tweet us at RIT Specs, we can answer your questions, and you don't have to worry about coming up to the microphone if you don't want to. Yeah. So let's begin. How many of you in the audience know about Europa? Okay. So how, Europa. Sorry? How many of you have seen Europa Report? It's a movie. Don't. It's a bad movie. Do not. <laughs> <laughs> so Europa is the sixth largest moon in the solar system. It's one of Jupiter's four Galilean moons. Um, it gets that phrase, the Galilean moon, because it was one of um, the bodies around Jupiter that Galileo himself observed with one of the first telescopes in 1610. So to give you an idea of what Europa looks like, it's about the size of Earth's own moon, a little bit smaller. It's really white and bleak, and it's covered in these deep reddish-brown cracks. And so beneath it, like, those, that whitish color comes from the fact that it's covered in ice. So it's really cold and way out there in the solar system, but it's covered in water that's frozen on the surface. You can jump in yeah. anytime, Kevin. <laughs> uh, exactly. So the reason why it has that cracked surface is that it's not just, you know, Europa sitting there alone. Uh, Europa is pretty close to Jupiter, close enough that Jupiter's gravity is noticeably different in between the close side and the far side of Europa. This creates a bit of stretching between the two sides. And as Europa rotates, well, that stretching kind of makes the surface of Europa a mess. All those ice sheets uh, crack and get slightly moved, and also this stretching warms up subsurface water, which can then 
rise up in between those cracks and erupt. Uh, they're called cryovolcanoes, so yeah. ice volcanoes. And then this water ice will resurface uh, the surface of Europa. Yeah. So that flexing and pulling works in a lot of the same ways that make the tides here on Earth. So we see the oceans on Earth um, stretching and receding. That's Earth and the moon reacting with each other. Well, Europa interacts with Jupiter in a similar way. So that crust is still 10 miles thick. And observations have shown that those oceans are churning and interacting with the seafloor. And um, that is really similar to the way Earth's oceans act. So it's really, really cool. Um, and what do we see in Earth's oceans? Life. So that's one of the main reasons why um, Europa is so interesting to us in terms of space exploration. A simpler analogy to maybe think about Europa is it's like kneading a ball of clay. So as it orbits around Jupiter, it's constantly being, you know, um, restructured and that heats up the center of it, which melts all that ice because it's so far away from the sun. Otherwise, it would be a solid block of ice. Yeah, and you might say, okay, cool, let's go. But it's it's not that easy. Um, I just want to give everyone in the audience a sense of scale. Um for the things we're talking about. So we said Europa is the size of the moon, and we kind of know how big that is, right? Well, light takes eight minutes from the sun to get to Earth. It takes 35 more minutes of at light speed to get to Europa. So it's really, really far away. And I did some math last night, um, <laughs> as nerdy as I am, and if Earth was right here in front of me, the size of a beach ball, um, Europa would be about the size of a soccer ball in Brockport. So that's a real sense of scale. That's how far away these things are. And the even cooler is not that we know all this stuff about it, even though it's so far away and so small, but there have already been missions that flew past Europa, and that's how we have pictures of it, and we want to go back. Yeah, and those previous missions gave us uh, the information that we have about Europa, about the uh, subsurface oceans, and also about that churning that you mentioned. Uh, it's it's a really interesting story about how we know that, right? You have this churning subsurface ocean underneath 10 miles of ice. How How do you prove that, right? You can't see it. And the way they do that is that with the previous flybys, uh, specifically from the Pioneer spacecraft, Voyager, Galileo especially, which focused on Jupiter, uh, the churning ocean contains salt. And that churning salt ocean is going to influence Europa's magnetic field. And then that interacts with Jupiter's. And then the smart people that you know calculate all it's this and nuts. model it in computers are able to calculate, oh, it's churning this much. This, this much is happening. Yeah. And so even looking at it from super far away, like these geysers that we're mentioning, Hubble saw them, right? So, okay, I just want to take a step back and say the reason why Hubble could see them is because they're 10 times higher than Mount Everest um, the ice that's going in the air. But nonetheless, um, we're, it, it just blows my mind. So let's talk about maybe some past missions and what we want to do in the future to explore Europa some more. So do you guys have anything? So uh, the main mission that's been in the news is uh, NASA's Europa Clipper. So uh, through orbital dynamics, getting all the way out to Jupiter and then orbiting Europa is relatively difficult. Uh, so Europa Clipper does not actually orbit Europa exclusively. It orbits Jupiter and does very close flybys of Europa. 
And that will let us uh, do close-up measurements with Europa. There's plans to actually fly through those ice geysers and actually be able to take sample readings of that. And that is one of the mission proposals uh, that's actually, it's gotten funding from Congress, is actually starting to move along. So maybe 10 years down the line. Yeah. One other reason why um, the probe is designed to basically go to Jupiter and make really close passes with Europa, but not orbit it directly, is because as it gets close enough to Europa, it's also closer to Jupiter, and there's a lot of radiation around Jupiter. So to have something stay that close for a long time, you run into all sorts of problems because radiation is radiation, and it's probes don't like radiation. So if they stay out of that realm where it's really, really dangerous, they can pop in about 45 times over the course of a few years um, and take their measurements in relative safety. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the main reason that we want to go to Europa is that it is a very large source of liquid water, uh, saltwater oceans, which, as Phil said, on Earth are teeming with life. Uh, with Mars, most of the probes we've gone there, we haven't discovered any life there. It, we now know there was liquid water at one point, uh, but Europa currently has liquid water. It is gaining uh, energy through Jupiter's uh, tidal flexing. And so it's relatively warm. Uh, water is a central part of life. Relatively warm underneath the 10 miles of ice. Yeah, un yes, exactly, <laughs> under that ice. Uh, so it's become pr basically the prime candidate for non-Earth life in our solar system. That's kind of what most scientists believe, is that if there is life in our solar system, the most likely place, at least outside of Mars, would be on Europa. Yeah, one of the things that we need to consider about uh, possible life on Europa is the stability of these ocean environments. Uh, if it were, say, all these distinct subsurface lakes in separate pockets, life may take a really, really long time to form. Uh, for example, here on Earth, a single cellular life took about three billion years of, you know, sitting around figuring things out before multicellular life was figured out, and then everything exploded into diversity. Right. So what we're hoping is that the, this large, continuous subsurface ocean on Europa has provided some sort of stable environment for life to figure itself out and to become more and more complicated. Yeah, and if there is life on Europa, it's probably totally and completely different from life on Earth, um, whether it's single cellular or multicellular, unless... It, it's cool. Maybe not even cellular. Maybe. Who knows? <laughs> but one of the amazing things about that is that if we do find life there and it's completely different, that's just, you know, across our solar system. What about in stars? Like there are so many stars with so many planets. If it happened twice in our solar system, it could potentially happen like... All the time. Billions and trillions of times, all different, unique, uh, new life. Yeah, so let's talk about the tech that can make this detection and stuff happen in NASA Clipper or some of the other missions. Let's talk about this stuff. Yeah. So let's break down Europa Clipper. I already kind of mentioned that. Uh, so it does, it orbits Jupiter and does flybys of Europa. Uh, that's because the Delta V, uh, kind of the uh, energy mileage at your spacecraft is much less to orbit your, uh, Jupiter than to actually orbit Europa. And it does these passes. And one of their design goals is to go fly through those uh, yeah. ice plumes. Uh, what we're hoping to find is that bits of, if there's life in Europa's oceans, organic compounds from that life would be in that ejected water and we'd be able to detect that. Um, now, Europa proposes a 
kind of a problem because the whole surface is solid ice with these cracks. And because it's so close to Jupiter, it's getting bombarded with radiation. So the surface of the planet, even if life came up from the ocean and landed on the surface, we probably wouldn't be able to find it. So we want to go uh, and test. We, we want to test what's deeper. in the water. Yeah. So <laughs> Europa Clipper is, you know, trying to get those plumes. And there's a couple other more far out proposals about actually going through the ice. So Congress recently ordered uh, the development of some sort of lander plan. So in some form or another, uh, Congress wants us to have some sort of testing equipment on the surface of Europa. And then that idea has taken many different forms, from a very simple lander that find that uh, the Europa Clipper finds, okay, here's a plateau of ice that's relatively flat, and it's near one of these cryovolcanoes. Let's land it there. But then you can become more complicated and say, well, we want to explore the oceans. What if we try drilling down like through one of these cracks? Or we send some sort of submersible that could explore the ocean. And these are somewhat more far out ideas yeah. that would require a whole lot more technology to do. So let's talk about um, that drilling mission. So if we just put down a lander on the surface, it really doesn't suit our design goals because any organic material that's on the surface would get stomped out by the radiation. So we have to go into that ocean. Now, uh, Phil said that's that 10 miles, down. 10 miles yeah. of solid ice. Uh, also, uh, you know, you can get a power drill here, plug into the wall or have a battery and you drill your holes and that's that. When you're in Europa, uh, the main source of power we use for spacecraft is photovoltaic, so solar pa panels. But the farther you get out uh, from Earth, that from light energy, or yeah, from the sun, that light energy spreads out and become much, much less efficient. Uh, Juno is a solar powered uh, probe going to the outer solar system and it needs relatively large solar arrays for its size just to get enough power. Uh, so when you get down to the surface, you have to think of creative ways of using, getting energy to actually drill through all that ice. Yeah. And it, instead of drilling, like in the conventional sense, the mechanical sense where you're removing material, since it's ice, theoretically, if we got something really hot or something really radioactive that makes a lot of heat, um, we could melt through the ice, which could be a, a potential way to get under that thick layer, but that still, where, do, where does that energy come from? Yeah, so uh, NASA's actually actively researching that. There's a program called Valkyrie, and it is a nuclear hydrothermal drill. Now, when we talk about energy, you usually talk about electricity in watts, right? Kilowatt hours, uh, things like that. Uh, with nuclear power plants, on Earth, we use the nuclear reaction, take that heat, heat water, make electricity, and that runs all of the electronics and stuff we have, right? Uh, but that waste heat at a power plant usually just gets dumped out into a lake or ocean. Now, when you actually have a probe, you can actually use that heat to your benefit. So instead of generating power from a little mini power plant on this lander, you would actually uh, pump water into the hole you're trying to drill, pass it through the reactor, heat it up, it would melt the water, and then you have more water that you then cycle through. So you basically have a hot water drill bit that continuously grows as you go down. So it uses the hot, it heats up some water and shoots hot water to melt the ice? Yes. And so it uses that waste heat that is kind of lost to us when we're trying to use electricity to so if it has do a, useful work. A nuclear power generator that is making, I mean, will it use that? It would both make electricity and use the waste to drill, drill deeper and deeper. That's cool. Yeah. 
Yeah, so uh, these radioactive generators have been used on space probes before. Uh, actually, Congress just recently passed uh, laws allowing NASA to produce more of these because for, for a long time there was very strict civilian c control on how, like, how much of these you can produce. And very fortunately, NASA is getting permission to produce more, more of these, uh, specifically the brand of plutonium that they use. So if you have this, this generator at, at the tip of the drill bit, then suddenly all this heat that normally just isn't used is, is very useful. Yeah. And then we get to the issue of once we drill below the crust, what do we do? Mm -hmm. uh, one option is to pump up, pump up the water like, like we do on oil, with oil on Earth. We can use oil. We can use the water that comes up through the hole and um, examine it for potential signs of life or its composition. Um, but another even further out idea is to take something like a submersible, like a, a mini submarine, drop it down the hole and have that swim around and then report back. My personal favorite. Um, <laughs> not exactly sure um, how realistic it is, though. Yeah, and there's a lot of challenges to that, right? So you have this huge, uh, thick ice sheet, and you need to get all the way through it down to the ocean. Uh, so if you want to have submersible, the diameter of your submersible means that that borehole has to be wider. And you're talking about a huge increase in the amount of ice you actually have to melt through or drill through. And so that pushes uh, the mission designers to make that submersible as skinny and slender as possible. And that means that, you know, you can't have bulky components. So you're looking into the microelectronic world, miniaturizing sensors, yeah, miniaturizing yeah, batteries. Yeah, come on, let me believe. And uh, <laughs> it's a really interesting challenge. Another another challenge is communication with the like the mothership lander. So let's say you drop the submersible underneath ten miles of ice, but now it's underneath ten miles of ice, <laughs> so it won't be able to get Wi-Fi basically. Uh, so what would be used is in the case of a submersible is some sort of tether, some sort of physical connection to report back. And that bring limits ten your miles range. of it. Yeah, yeah, it'd have to be super small, super light. But that's what they've done for Antarctica, I believe. They've actually drilled down holes deep in the um, in the uh, ice and sent down a submersible that's connected via tether, just like that. Cool. So the NASA Clipper mission is getting funded. Maybe not the, the lander part is supposed to happen as well, right? Yeah, so the Europa Clipper mission has a very interesting funding history. Uh, it started out with only a little bit of funding, and NASA had always wanted a Europa mission because scientists have always been pushing for it for a long time. But then uh, a representative um, in the House of Representatives, Representative uh, John Culberson from Texas, he became head of the House subcommittee on science appropriations. He is a huge fanboy of Europa. And so that was in the 2015 budget, I think, 2015, 2016. They got $175 million for the development of this plan. Uh, currently, the 2017 budget only is 35. So there's like this initial support. And I think people told him, like, <laughs> there are other projects uh, yeah. that need to get funded. So it got a really big amount of money at once. And so that's why you're now hearing about this, because now a lot of research and development can be afforded. Yeah. And when we talk about $175 million, yeah. uh, that seems like a ton of money to all of us. Uh, but estimates uh, going from just a Clipper orbiter mission to a lander could actually increase the cost by a billion dollars extra. Yeah, so a billion dollars. we're talking about huge sums of money. Yeah. And... 
although um, it, it is getting funded and it should take place in the 2020s. So not that far away, um, which is super exciting to me. Um, and there's also another launch that's slated for 2022, another experiment, um, which is from the ESA, the European Space Agency, uh, called the Jupiter Icy Moon Explorer, or JUICE. <laughs> um, but that's not going just to Europa. It's going to other icy moons around Jupiter, uh, looking for life again. And um, that's for 2022. So there is this huge push to see what's out there with Europa, and I'm very, very excited. <laughs> Yeah, the, the, uh, like the gas giants and the ice giants in the outer solar system are criminal, criminally understudied, uh, compared to the inner solar system planets. So it's always good news to see funding going towards them. Yeah. One of the big challenges, Phil mentioned that it takes 35 light minutes for us to get from Earth to Europa. That means radio communications one way is 35 minutes, which means pretty much everything you do is autonomous. And so when we talk about the submersible, not only do you have to land on Europa. Not only do you have to drill through all the ice, get the submersible down there, then it needs to operate autonomously under 10 miles of ice, connected by a very thin wire all the way up to the lander. And then it has to, if it wants to send anything back, that's power that it can't use for everything else. Mm -hmm. And this is all after it takes three to six years to get there after launching from Earth. So... All right, so I think that that's all we have for for this episode, but... There should be a microphone right up here. We're going to take questions. Let's check the Twitter. Yeah, I'm monitoring it. Um, Something comes up. Uh, RIT Specs. Yes, so uh, RIT Space Exploration has our Twitter account, RIT Specs. We also S-P-E-X. Yes. Uh, we also have a Facebook page uh, that promotes all of our projects. And SpecsCast, uh, we have 11 episodes so far. We're on iTunes, uh, Google Play Music, supports podcasts, Stitcher, etc. Uh, if you have your own favorite podcasting app, you can actually uh, search for SpecsCast. You'll find our uh, homepage, and you can manually add the uh, RSS feed yourself. Uh, we usually post every week, uh, Wednesday mornings, for a variety of topics. In the past, we, we've interviewed the CCRG on gravitational yeah. waves. We've talked about colonizing the moon or colonizing Mars. Uh, we did a nice little book uh, club episode on Brave New World. Uh, so we do a variety of topics, uh, most of the time, uh, space-themed. Yeah. And as for the Twitter account, I've been manning that all day. So the most recent tweet is a picture of the sun that's right outside Gosnell Hall. I actually put my phone behind these certain glasses and took a picture of the sun and looked at it directly, which is pretty fun. So uh, shameless advertisement. Uh, if you want to look at the sun safely and not burn out your eyes... <laughs> Uh, there's the Astrophysical Sciences and the Technology Department exhibit, which is by the greenhouse along the south wall of Gosnell. Yeah, Kevin's manning that station, too. So a little bit of cross-promotion here. But, um, yeah. And if you haven't been to the main specs booth, we have the pretty much the entire first floor of Gosnell. Uh, so that's a left at the Infinity Quad. We're showing all of the projects we've been working this year, uh, senior design projects uh, for our CubeSat, potential CubeSat payloads, uh, our high-altitude balloon that will be launching tomorrow at 11 a.m. from parking lot G, if you want to come check that out. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. All right, thanks, everybody, for listening. Oh, yeah, we've got a question up here. So the question here was, Europa has all these cracks and ravines that form when the crust cracks. Why don't we put a lander or a probe inside those cracks to get below the surface? 
That's a really good question. Um, I don't know the answer off the top of my head. I know that uh, the cracks are very short-lived, so they'll they'll be open, you know, for a very short period of time and then close as the water freezes again. So it may be highly variable depending on where on Europa uh the cracks formed because in some areas the, the the stretching will be stronger than others. There was a follow-up question. I'm not sure we didn't catch it on the audio, but I think it's a talking about flexible probes and landers rather than wheels. Yes, I've definitely seen plans for. It kind of looks like a tentacle robo squid. Yes, that that plan. Uh, so it kind of had these interlocking uh, parts along the exterior shell that would allow it to bend. And then that may make it easier for it to get into more difficult locations. I think uh, Cosmos, a space-time odyssey, uh, the revival with Neil deGrasse Tyson touched on that in one of their episodes. Yeah. So There was another question back here. Yeah. Uh, so the question was, how do we know ice is 10 miles thick? And So that's yeah. going to be from uh, previous probes that have gone to Jupiter. Uh, they've looked at Europa quite extensively, lo- specifically looking for uh, the... Sp- the uh, strength of that bending, like how much is Europa kind of breaking apart at the seams. Uh, They also look using um, different magnetic field measurements. And then I had mentioned that that earlier, how that's also used to determine kind of the the amount of uh, salty water that could be underneath the surface. We've had similar practice with um, Earth and the moon looking at what's inside Right. Um, or rather in taking measure, measurements and then inferring what's inside. And, uh, also since we've seen these plumes of what we presume to be water, sending a, uh, probe there, assuming it's water and finding out it's like hydrochloric acid would suck, but it would be good to know. <laughs> um, so either way, it would be, we'd sending a probe there, we'd find out so much more than we ever would, um, just by flying by every once in a while. Question in the front. So this was about our high-altitude balloon, and the question was, once we launch it, how do we track where it goes? We have an APRS module on there, which uses uh, radio beacons, basically, to tri- triangulate its position. And uh, we expect the launch to be roughly two hours. Um, but you never know, with wind currents and whatnot, our last launch in October ended up in Maine, sat in a tree <laughs> for a couple months, and then uh, a family and our kids found it and graciously mailed it back to us. So you never know. But yeah, Thank yeah. you. Sure. Um, one last thing about the high altitude balloon. I just like talking about it. Um, it's going up to 100,000 feet in the air, but it's also taking along with it some experimental hardware for a CubeSat, which is yep. a tiny satellite that our group is working toward building at RIT. And so we've got this plan to deploy solar panels um, from a 10 centimeter cube. And we have it mounted to the side. We've got mm-hmm. a GoPro watching it. And we're going to take it up to and at 70,000 feet. We're going to trigger it, um, and it's going to deploy. And when we get uh, back the footage back, we'll see how it did. Yeah, so we're hoping to get a shot uh, with our GoPro camera of it deploying and then in the background seeing, you know, the curvature of the earth and all that. That would be pretty cool. And the main point is just to test the actual solar panel deployment because that could eventually be used on a small satellite. Yeah, and you can check out the high-altitude balloon that's launching tomorrow at our booth um, and a demonstration of um, the solar panels and the high altitude balloon. They're they're all there on Gaz now. So, one one more question. Yeah, uh, we didn't quite catch this question on the audio either, but I think it's asking if people can draw from biology and animals in their lander design. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why they that whole idea of a flexible, um, like think of a snake. You know, and if you could, it's about the same diameter as a hole, and you drop it down, and then it can an eel, if you will, and then it can swim away. Um, and that whole system is all interconnected. I like the idea of having the whole thing drop down and be like a little fish and then swim back to the surface and beam back up, but that might not be realistic. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah with, with those kind of submersibles, um, there's lots of constraints, right? Um, you're basically either you're using battery power exclusively, which means you only have a few hours down there, or you're getting power over a very thin wire, which means yeah. uh, minimizing the energy you consume is critical. And that's why they're looking towards a biology for uh, kind of uh, ideas. Oh, inspiration. So, yeah. yeah, inspiration. For uh, fish, they have very uh, streamlined bodies and streamlined ways of propelling themselves to minimize the amount of energy they, they use. And so trying to design a submersible that has all your sensors that can act like a fish and kind of glide around yeah. is something they're actually pursuing. Yeah. But um, I'm not sure how far the lander is in development, but um, I think it's in the very, very early stages. Yeah, very early uh- it's very early because the order from Congress just yeah. came like in the past year. Yeah. The Europa Clipper, the or the Jupiter Orbiter itself, that's much more long development. They've already chosen instruments right. to so, be on that. So we could the lander itself could turn out to be any one of these ideas. We we just don't know yet, and it's up to NASA to decide. So I think that's all the time we have for today. Um, we're Specscast um, from RIT Space Exploration and. Joining us today has been Kevin Cook. Um, thanks a lot for listening and enjoy Imagine RIT. And thank you for listening. That wraps up episode 12, talking about exploring Europa live from Imagine RIT. We'll be back next week with another discussion on space exploration, science, and technology with Anthony Hennig about asteroid mining. Uh, that's one of our more popular episodes um and it'll be back in excellent quality i can assure you we'll be talking about its thesis it'll be great send us your questions at specscast at gmail.com or tweet to us at rit specs and if you want to hear more consider subscribing to us through itunes or your favorite podcast app this podcast is made possible by rit specs a space exploration student faculty research organization at the rochester institute of technology Special thanks to the Interactive Learning Grant Program for giving us the tools to promote student and faculty engagement outside the classroom. Our music is by Kevin Hartnell. This has been SpexCast. We'll see you next week.